Hey, Ruth. Hey, Rachel. Name yourself. I actually want to talk about Hippolyta and the main plot of this episode last. Okay. Much like a couple weeks ago when it was mostly Ruby and Montrose, this episode was very much Hippolyta. There were some other interesting things that happened in it, though. So what do you want to talk about? Well, first on my list is Montrose. Yeah. When we see Montrose, it's the morning and Sammy is over at his place cooking him breakfast. And one, it was really nice to see him a little bit happy. Yeah. Didn't last long, though, did it? No. You can tell he's been protecting himself for a long time. And you can also tell he has reason to protect himself. So he gets into it a little bit with Sammy about being seen. And I mean, clearly, um, because that asshole tree shared with us. So there's rumors about him. And Sammy is maybe a little bit more out and a little bit more effeminate. So So about this, this fight that he has with Sammy, it's clearly a fight that they have had many times before. And Sammy's just like, Mm-mm, I'm not doing it. I'm going to, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Montrose is like, no, I don't, I don't want that, though. I just want everything, which is impossible. I want an impossible thing. That struggle is real. Luddy and Tick show up while Sammy is, like, walking out on him. And it's very clearly a lover's situation that they walk in on. Even without Tree's rumors, I think they would have been confused or clued in. So what did you think was going to happen? I kind of expected it to go something like it did. I mean, I can speak from experience finding out one of your parents has a different sexuality than you thought. It's a whole big thing. And I can't imagine Tick as a character being well prepared to deal with it after having been raised by his father the way his father raised him. Mm hmm. A lady seemed to take a much more compassionate response and sort of kept her head in it like, whatever this is, your family. Family is, again, an important part of this episode. Letty, again, is the superhero in one, getting the information. And then two, yeah, she's just super invested in all things Tick. And that includes Montrose. And I, I mean, she clearly sees them in each other. So mm-hmm. I think she has a kind of love for Montrose that is, is out of her love for Tick. Yeah, whatever he is, he's family. She doesn't let whatever she's feeling or thinking stop her Mm -hmm. like one hopes that she'd be more accepting and more supportive but one hopes that for all characters one likes right well she did very much seem like well it does not seem like my thing that i have to deal with tick is her thing that she has to go deal with like her participation in this is like dealing with his feelings she's already got a pregnancy on her hands. This is really small beans compared to everything else. That's item number four. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll get there. Next up, it, number two, is in other gay news. <laughs> Let's talk about Ruby and Christina. Well, first, I loved that Christina did that whole scene with blood on her face. She's just like, okay, you needed to see what it is. I am not cleaned up. I am just like covering myself a little bit and uh all right we'll talk about what's going on a little bit of towel action yeah (laughs) and you know 
Ruby is like, tell me everything. And then they like jump cut to like Christina being like, and so this is the cadaver lab. Right. (laughs) I love that they didn't walk us through any of it, that they're just like, here's some magic shit. Well, we get the confirmation that William really was the person that we thought he was, like someone who was threatening the lodge situation, Mm -hmm. someone who could have been Christina's ally, and someone whom Christina then chose to continue impersonating for her own ends. I'm still not entirely clear on how dead they are, because... It seems like you need a supply of blood. I wonder if she's keeping something flowing through their veins. Maybe a little Herbert West reanimator-y, but not really reanimated. Yeah. And like how, well, William makes sense, but like how do you pick which dead people that you want to have on hand? Maybe Christina doesn't actually have that many corpses ready to hand. (laughs) And so she's like, all right, I'll see what I can do with this one. If nothing else, it's a disguise, right? (laughs) Whatever happened, Letty hit her on the head with a shovel. In the first couple of episodes, we saw Christina and Hillary, like, together running the monsters and the dogs. So, like, it's possible that she killed her. But it's also possible that she just died. Yeah. But she clearly brought her to Chicago. So there's some amount of planning, as we come to expect from Christina. Ruby is a little upset by this situation, but as I was watching it, I mean, it's it's clearly a fight. Yes. But I never felt like Ruby was completely out. I think that she's still in. Oh, I agree. I think she needs some space to clear her head. She could make a decision not to come back, but I don't think she's going to. I think you're right that she's hooked. What about Christina's feelings? Do they exist? What are they? (laughs) She's got some bisexual energy going on. Yeah. So Ruby, when she's back at Hippolytus, she goes and she stays over at their place because she doesn't have anywhere to stay. And she ends up having those conversations with Letty about like where she's been and what she's been up to. And she keeps it she keeps it a little close to the chest, you know? She She's not really sharing a lot of information about the whole situation. I know Letty's hiding things from her, and I think she knows that Letty's hiding things from her. And she'll accept an apology for the like family business that Letty shouldn't have been hiding. But mm. where Letty and Tick have been and what she's been up to, it's kind of each of them's their own business. Yeah. Because we're not close like that kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. So she's just hanging out babysitting. Letty's hanging out and D&M are having a good old time playing cards with the cool ants, which is really what it's about in life, right? Oh my gosh. When my older cousins would like come hang out with us, because my cousins, I have twin cousins that are nine years older than I am. And then another cousin's like four years older. Oh, that was just the best. I am the older cousin, so I have no idea, but (laughs) it makes me feel cool to know that people feel that way. One of uh, these little friends says, so when is Bobo coming back? And he's not. According to the episode title, this will be the subject of next week's episode. I would also say the preview foreshadowed that a fair amount. Like, Dee is clearly having, besides other things that we'll get to later in this episode, she's clearly having a real bad break. And I think that this is partly 
connected to stuff that's fallout from this episode and from her father dying. But I get the sense that whatever she's going to team up with, which seems somewhat horrifying from the preview. Yeah. That's connected. Yeah. That might even be why Letty's in a church full of candles, actually. Oh, well, I can't imagine Letty taking any kind of death well from now until forever. Yeah. And I wasn't sure when I saw it in the original season trailer what the context would be of why there are so many candles in the church, because that's not normal. Mm, right. But if it was after a memorial. Yeah. Number four is Letty and Tick. Letty and Tick don't have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was you that messaged me. Well, with all that boning. <laughs> what could possibly happen? <laughs> all of the on-screen and off-screen sex that they've been having in the 50s. So Letty has a dream, and she has the dream, and it's the same dream that Tick's been having. But in the dream, she sees uh, Hannah is the name of their mm-hmm. ancestor. And then when it comes back to her, she's pregnant. I guess that's how she's having the dream is for the moment she has family blood. Tick has been translating the pages, but he's also been thinking about his family and the family histories. And so they have a little, you know, study session as usual. Mm -hmm. And they, they come upon this truth when they kind of do dream analysis (laughs) <laughs> Which is a kind of fortune telling that is allowed by by Jewish law, by the way. Don't talk to ghosts, but you can interpret dreams, like Joseph. Oh well, and Daniel. Right. Right. It's a storied history. So in the in the dream, Hannah is holding a book and <laughs> Letty slips up a little bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a little early even to be telling your man. But they get to thinking about why would you steal a book? And they realize that it's like the book. Mm-hmm. So the book made it out of the fire. And Letty gets excited about it for the first time. Do you think that's connected to her pregnancy or the fact that she dreamed this end up being and like interpreted this with Tick? I think because it's a way that they could win. Yeah, I loved what he said, you know, Christina's looking for a page. They could have the whole book. Yeah. That's why they went over to Montrose's place to figure out where his mom has some family. Mm-hmm. And like everyone, it's St. Louis. (laughs) Here's a little synchrony that came into my head only after the first time I watched it. Uh Uh-huh. In the last episode, Gia's watching Meet Me in St. Louis. (laughs) Yeah. For real. Yeah. And in this, Tick takes a trip to St. Louis, but he also doesn't stay. Yeah. St. Louis um, also has a a resonance with Tulsa because it's a a site of another major race riot where white folks from St. Louis went to East St. Louis and just, you know, destroyed an entire community. So they burned down the entire town and 6,000 people were left homeless. The East St. Louis massacre, over a thousand white men went down over to East St. Louis and they had to mean it too. They had to cross a bridge. They didn't just stumble upon a community. Mm-hmm. Part of my family is from St. Louis, so you can see in in St. Louis, in East St. Louis, and the city and county of St. Louis, uh, how basically East St. Louis has never 
recover from that. And that would have been maybe five years before the Tulsa massacre. Mm-hmm. So Letty and Tick make plans to go down to St. Louis and find this cousin. And they go to see if they can borrow the car. And Hippolyta is not having it on so many levels. She's just like, no, I don't need any of your secret missions. I got my own secret mission. (laughs) And we're not having any kind of conversation. And Ruby's over there because she was right then agreeing to to babysit while Hippolyta's just off on a secret mission. (laughs) And much like George, she's like, I'm I'm doing a guide trip. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh... She's a good cover for a uh, secret mission. But Letty decides when she sees Ruby over there that she's not going to take the bus with Tick. She's going to stay and, uh, I guess, try and mend fences. Yeah, that's like another example of where family came in so important in this episode. That she could go with her man and keep going on this quest that like she's gotten really invested in now, but... Her sister's more important, and I I really liked that. Ruby, when you see her at Hippolyta's, definitely looks like she needs someone to talk to. Unfortunately, it's it's not quite bloody, other than apologizing for the fight that happened in the house and uh, Ruby pointing out to her that she's pregnant. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's rude to tell people who are pregnant that they're pregnant or say anything about it until they say something to you. I learned this the hard way. Um, <laughs> once somebody was like, oh, I'm pregnant. And I was like, I know. <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> they were like, how? And I was like, well, you just, you seem pregnant to me. <laughs> it's, which is apparently very rude. So I've never done it again. I think also the appeal to Letty not going is that she does, I think, need a little bit of a break from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she has had a really hard time. Just a really intense long period. And sure, they've been like hanging out and decoding stuff and having sex and decoding stuff. And they've been having essentially study group and sex and stuff. It's like college. They're doing college. I assume this is how people do college. It's not how I did college, but you could do college this way. So Tick goes on his, his secret mission taking the bus to St. Louis and finding the cousin, but he doesn't find the cousin because she's dead. As old people (laughs) do. That's a mood. But who does he find? Well, he finds her cousin's roommate, who I think really is just her roommate. Like, You don't think there's any tiny bit of gal pal involved? I mean... We're having the whole gay time in this episode. Yeah, I could read it in, but also just, you know, I've thought about what would happen because I'm in a quilt group and there's a whole lot of widows in quilt groups. And if I don't have any kids, I've just thought like, sure, I mean, cool. It would be cool to like take a lady lover late in life. That's alliterative. (laughs) But (laughs) if I don't have that option because of where I live, I would at least like to live like with a friend or something, maybe. Yeah, like have have a good old time. Like, yeah. Two gals on the town, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm open to it, but I just, uh, just from a practical point of view, this is a thing I have thought about in my life. But yeah, well, I'm throwing like cold water all over your, your thoughts, um, but her friend does have her stuff still. Yes, a true friend. 
and the photo album where he sees that this cousin has the same birthmark as him. Yeah, and I couldn't make out any particular significance from it unless, I don't know, did you see anything? I don't know how to interpret it at all other than, like, you know, proof of heritage or maybe a special blessing. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Letty calls the house where he's at. I'm wondering if they had called ahead of time. But there's also a situation where you would want to, if he's planning on staying there, or you just call to say, like, I've arrived. Don't worry about me. Yeah, for real. Like, even normally, not in, like... Oh, and also we're fighting, you know, this whole order. (laughs) Right. Like, even in normal, horrifying life, you would just call to say you're all right. They have discovered the mission that Hippolyta is on, and she needs backup. So Tick, I guess, jumps on another bus? Who knows? He somehow gets to nowhere, Kansas. I forget even the name of the town that came up on the screen. Oh, it's it's just the middle of fucking nowhere. I've been in Kansas. My family lived in Kansas. And I can tell you that not a single place in Kansas is anywhere. <laughs> I'm from Iowa. And I love Iowa. And I love the Midwest. And I love Kansas. But there are no places in, in Kansas. <laughs> There's like no specific locations. It's it's just emptiness, which makes it a great place to have an observatory, actually. Yeah. Which is where Hippolyte is at. And she was in the middle of some stuff, and some local lawman came to harass her on the order of our Chicago lawman. I wondered if they were just checking in on his orders, like monitoring the place or whatever, and then saw a car. Right. It made me think... They got these magic motherfuckers in Kansas. (laughs) They're everywhere. In the second episode or third episode, Mantra said something about a whole bunch of lodges before he told them that he'd read the book and destroyed it. Yeah, like a lot of lodges. Even even if you were saying the whole world, that is a lot. So there's the Kansas Lodge. I mean, what else is there to do in Kansas? I'm so sorry. I shouldn't dunk on Kansas. But you see, most of the Russian Mennonites are in Kansas or come from Kansas or connected to Kansas and there's like a little there's nothing to do it's only pasture land you can't even farm I don't know what they did out there they talk about the great state of Kansas ironically but you know still it's big sky country out there it's huge yes several of them have told me this (laughs) the vistas are enormous when my dad was um he worked on the wheat harvest and he said they would go sit on top of the tractor and they would count the lights on top of the grain silos and see how many towns they could see. <laughs> and, I mean, that's like maybe 15, 15 feet in the air. And he said they could normally on any night see like 15, 20 towns. That is wild to me. That is just utterly wild. There's just nothing happening. Because this week's episode has a strong Afrofuturist component, I'm going to recommend some of the amazing Afrofuturist books that I've read over the last few years. Now, if you're looking for classics, 
Octavia Butler and her Xenogenesis trilogy is amazing. And really all of her work is fantastic and falls under the general umbrella of Afrofuturism. The first time I encountered Afrofuturism, it was in Mothership, Tales from Afrofuturism and Beyond, edited by Bill Campbell. There's a lot of awesome authors represented in there. Some specific books that I have enjoyed are that mixture of science fiction and horror. Binti by Nnedi Okorafor, which is fairly short, and An Unkindness of Ghosts by Rivers Solomon. Both of them left me with beautiful images in my head and visions of other ways that the world might be. And a lot of people have praised Solomon's work on representing a neurodiverse character without othering the character as such. You can also check out N.K. Jemison's How Long Till Black Future Month, which is a collection of short stories, and her Broken Earth trilogy, which I feel falls more on the sci-fi end of things and is one of the most powerful series that I have read in a long time, particularly, I think, for people like me who have lost a mother and perhaps for people who have difficult relationships with their mothers. So you can borrow these from your local library, or we recommend ordering these from a Black-owned bookstore. I'll put links in the show notes. Let's move on to the main plot, and there's a sort of like straight-through plot line with Hippolyta. And what did you think about this story? Well, it took a real Afrofuturist turn, and it was beautiful. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It was deep. It was, like, empowering and assess-your-own-life kind of story. I love this story. It's right up there with uh, last week's episode for me is probably one of my top episodes. I loved how even from the beginning, before she before she started naming herself and where she wanted to be, she was already naming herself and becoming herself. You know, she'd been doing these equations with the orrery before she had opened the portal. Mm-hmm. But as she's a prisoner, she's doing equations. She's testing gravity. She's figuring out how she can break her cell open. Yeah, so it starts out with, like, the whole how did she get to this observatory in Kansas where the machine is. So she figures out the orrery. She's doing all kinds of high-level stuff and making breakthroughs and one gets the impression that Hiram never got this far. Yeah. I wondered about that or if he was using it and he was using it for some kind of terrible experimentation instead. Yeah. Or if he was just like using it wrong anyway. So she, she opens it without breaking it and there's a key to the machine which has been called a time machine, but as we learn, is not a time machine. It's something so much more. And then she drives to the middle of nowhere, Kansas, to the left or right or north of nowhere. <laughs> it doesn't have to be. You said it's not the middle. It is not the middle of the contiguous United States. I checked. I checked twice. It's so close, though. It's 187 miles or so east. It's so close. 
And then even when she's there, she's figuring out how that machine works. <laughs> like, can you imagine yeah. just like walking up to a time machine and being like, hmm, here seems the gravitational force knob and like, then it just needs a smack up the side. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It just blew me away when she was working through all that stuff. So she's like a legit genius. And she's been, what has she been doing the past, you know, however many years? Well, she's been raising her daughter and she's been supporting her man. And copy editing. And copy editing, yeah. So that's a little upsetting because she, she's an astrophysicist. <laughs> anyway, at that point, the cops show up. Yeah, and I don't know if they had just a watch on the place, if they had any inkling somebody might be poking around, like if the captain thought Christina might be coming, you know, because she had come looking for the mm-hmm. orrery. So did they think that they were going to find Christina there? And of course, she does. she's not that far. But things aren't looking good for her. No. They're having a little standoff with her. And then Tick shows up. Somehow. It's like he jumped out of a portal in space. He just rode the bus to nowhere. To nowhere! How did he get here? Did he hitchhike, maybe? Uh, maybe the lady let him have her car? Who knows? Seems important. And also that lady didn't say anything when she walked in on him looking at his birthmark <laughs> in a mirror. So God bless her. <laughs> Tick repeats the running down the stairs and, and hitting a guy in the head. He does like a jump kick. <laughs> Just like Letty did. And then they uh, they fight it out. And uh, that's when Hippolyta shoots one of them. But yeah. they both end up dead, I think. Well, the other one gets thrown into space. Yeah, they mess up the machine. And it's mm. just like glitching, a glitching portal to who knows where. And Tix throws the dude into somewhere. Which is such a good like thing. Where's he going to end up? Who knows? Who cares? Right? That's his problem, not mine. <laughs> and then so they went. So they win uh, the fight because uh, there are heroes. But they've ripped the fabric of space and time. That's not good. <laughs> no, no. But it does sometimes happen. And they're trying to figure out how to shut it off or fix it and uh they get sucked in we don't know what happens to tick no i am so curious about that we'll talk about tick at the end because this is about hippolyta our hero a great woman so she's got all this ability she's discovers and she wakes up in this white room This makes me think of the first book in Octavia Butler's Dawn, her Lilith's Brood trilogy, where the protagonist wakes up in this room that's very white, uh, very sterile, bright. It's on an alien ship thing, and she's afraid that she's a prisoner. And in, in her case, she actually is a prisoner, and they're experimenting with waking up all these humans that they've put to sleep after humanity destroyed the Earth. And so they came in and said, surely you had a a nuclear accident here. And so they picked them all up and they're sort of waiting to wake them back up and figure out, can can they and the humans repopulate the world and can the world become something new? And so I saw that kind of parallel. It turns out to be a very different situation. And what she meets is not an alien, but maybe an angel. I don't know. What did you think about the, the person she meets? Maybe an ascended person. Definitely mm. seemed like of another plane. Yeah. Out of a P-Funk 
<laughs> music video, right? Like the aesthetic was fantastic. It was fantastic, like a whole metallic look and the just uh, gigantic yet geometric afro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, and it contrasts so much with Hippolyta's jumpsuit little thing that she's wearing at the beginning. Yeah. And so, and she says, you know, she's she's confined in this room and they've done something to her. Mm-hmm. And the guardian says, you're not a prisoner. Name yourself. But it takes Hippolyta a while to figure out what's happening mm-hmm. and what's going on. In my notes, I wrote that this section was about belief and maybe about like belief in possibility. Mm, yeah, like the possibility that she sees at first is that she's captured and she's in prison because that's the kind of possibility she expects. Right. This has to be what I expect it to be. But as soon as she starts figuring things out, and she figures a lot of things out, who knows how long all of these sections take you know Mm -hmm. she figures a lot of stuff out and then as maybe a little bit of a guy the next time seraphina comes back she says where do you want to be she says on on a stage with josephine baker in paris and that's where she ends up not realizing that one might need to know (laughs) the choreography (laughs) to be on the stage the divine being is very literal here you wanted to be there Uh, there you are but the thing is, like, so there's a little bit of, of comic with that. And she is she is fucking up. It. Well, and staring at Josephine Baker, which, I mean, well, I would I too. Mean, yes. And she forgets to take off her clothes at the end, which is not <laughs> how you do burlesque. But she stays there, right? Yeah. Josephine Baker's like, you got to learn the moves. And it, it seems like weeks. Yeah. Maybe months. Who knows? Like a long time. Yeah, and she becomes this beautiful, confident woman. She's lighting Josephine Baker's cigarette with a candle. That Mm -hmm. is the smoothest goddamn move I have ever seen. And Josephine Baker's telling her that she is not like the other girls. Ugh. (laughs) Living the dream. (laughs) Also, that actress was fantastic. Really lovely and a really good, like, match. Yeah. Powerful energy. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. I just can't imagine being asked. You know, obviously nobody would ask me to play Josephine Baker, <laughs> or if they did, I would laugh at them. But like, she does pull off being an icon, both as a dancer in her performances and just in her engagement with Hippolyta. Yeah. So, what did you think that this section was about? I thought about it for a bit, and I would say, to some degree, loosening up. You know, that's one of the things that Josephine tells her right up, loosen up. She finds herself among all these other women living the kind of life that she would never have known or expected. She compares how she's been taught to treat herself in the U.S. to being lynched. And so it seems like her first thing to do is to get out of the invisible invisible restrictions or even sometimes visible ones that she had accepted as part of living her life right like so when she's talking to to josephine baker she says that not only does she hate white folks but she hates herself for allowing you know society to Mm -hmm. exist 
Yeah, it made me think of internalized misogyny, which is something that I can experience. And I can see how she would struggle against both that and internalized racism. Right. Yeah, so I I definitely along those same lines, the lesson to be learned on the journey at this stop is about what it truly means to be free. Mm. Not just unshackled, but free in your mind and and in your spirit. But as they're discussing, you know, there's still some weights on you, but she is definitely much more free. After she's free, she realizes that she's still mad. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Understandably. Yeah. And uh, she begins a, a journey, a new journey, where she doesn't know where she's going. But she names herself, and she wants to be Hippolyta like Hippolyta, right? So she finds herself in a company of essentially Amazon women, all African, all defending themselves against a white colonial threat. Just so many white men on the horizon to kill. Our friends on Twitter have provided the the links and info on which groups are being represented from from the white men that were depicted, I got the idea that this is the colonization of Africa. But it doesn't start with that battle. It starts with training. Yes. Right? So she's she's getting beat down by Nawi, the leader of this group of women who is teaching them to be strong. Yes, she's not Hippolyta yet. You know, Hippolyta is queen of the Amazons, although there seems to be a separate queen in this, but she's not that yet either. Right. So when she was in Paris, she didn't want to be the the Hippolyta that showed up falling down on stage. Mm-hmm. She wanted to be the Hippolyta that she was when she left, which was knowing the moves and just chilling. Yes. <laughs> With her speed baker. So she wants to be Hippolyta, mother of Diana, warrior. So then she starts on the journey to be this with this group of women and with Nawi teaching them to fight. Everything about, I mean, God, I love me, you know, a training montage. Yeah. Is there anything better in the world? So she's getting strong and she's learning how the sword moves and she's learning to believe in herself. And there's some really inspirational speeches. And every time she falls down, she gets back up. Yeah. Because we are what we have. And then she's ready. And then she's ready. And then there's a battle. And they they sure murder the hell out of, well, they don't murder them. It's not murder. They defend themselves against the expeditionary force. A unfathomable horde of Englishmen show up. Well, I mean, they might have been Dutch. Or French. Yeah, yeah. Or this freaking Belgians. Oh, fuck the Belgians. They were the worst come approaching them at which point she has achieved the goal of this part of the journey at least in my understanding of the story Mm -hmm. what was this whole thing about so i saw two things in this one was about being able to fight back for herself in a way that she'd never been able to in her life despite everything that she'd experienced and i think the other thing that i saw in it was what sets the stage for the next scene because Nawi is talking about freedom to bear a man's children and freedom to 
well, we'll say do his dishes and freedom to live this life that is supported in certain ways, but also very much bound. And so I think she's not just looking at her life as a black woman in the U.S., but she's looking at her life as a woman who is put herself into this relationship that cuts her off. Because that town, there were no men in that town. No, it was all women. Yeah, I mean, on the face of it, you know, like, uh, fighting montage is about strength. Mm -hmm. But as we talked about last week, I have a background in combat sports. So I know, you know, what they're actually talking about in like boxing movies. (laughs) (laughs) And for real, it's not just about physical ability. Mm -hmm. Fighting and sparring at that high level, and then actually fighting, it's about belief in yourself and you have to understand exactly who you are to be your best self as a fighter. It's like a strength of body and mind to know I'm going to get up and I'm going to get up every time Mm -hmm. because that's who I am and that's who I've decided to be. And when I fight, this is the way that I fight because that's, you know, how my body works and that's who I am. And the reasons for fighting I have to be clear on that too. So when you really have it together, there is a oneness. Not to get too boxing movie on it, but it really is like that. And I I don't know how to explain it. You know, you feel a wholeness when you get to that level where you don't have any kind of body dysmorphia at all. You're like, I know what my body does and This is how we're going to do it. I know what my purpose is. We are accomplishing it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just in yourself and there's just so much strength in that. But then even after that, after she has learned this lesson, she wants to go home. And I think it's because she both needs to confront something about her relationship, but she recognizes that there's something really beautiful in it too. Yeah. What did you think about the whole scene with George? I think that a lot of women that I know would be a lot happier if the men that they're with would realize this. Mm -hmm. One thing I liked in The Haunting of Hill House was the metaphor that the parents as a couple used, that she was the kite and he was the line. And that's very much how I feel, that I sometimes need a little grounding And that it's good to have a line. But I also know so many people who, it's not that they have a line, it's that they're tied down. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really good for George as a character that we know and like and have rapport with to sit and reflect and say, you know what, I did stifle you and I don't want to do that anymore. And the way they did this in the story, you can tell that, you know, that it's written by maybe all women. Because one... My favorite thing is that George is like, am I real? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's never answered. So it's, it's really unclear. Mm-hmm. And does it matter? But that he is defensive at first. It does take him yeah, a minute to get there. Because, you know, he's like, wait, you know, but that's what I love about. You. Oh, shit. Yeah, he has to have a moment of realization and processing. And because he's fundamentally good and tries to be thoughtful at least in my estimation of him he gets there yeah but it's not easy it can't be easy at all to realize that you've done that to someone that you love and 
you didn't mean to, and you never noticed. And I think that a lot of us have relationships where folks beat themselves up for not knowing that you were suffering, you know, Mm. like, or not being present enough to understand something about a friend that something is going on, or I thought you knew me and all the things that I didn't say, (laughs) which is the kind of partnership that people want to have, but they get there. They do. And I love what happens next. That was so beautiful, uh, sort of a fulfillment of this episode and trip. Oh, it was amazing. Because now she's Arethea Blue and she's got the outfit and the spaceship and they're exploring other planets. She takes his hand and then they go into like crazy comic book land and it's beautiful and... They're just out there. And because we don't have a really good sense of time on all of these, maybe they're out there a really long time. It's like that your most fulfilled self is the dream of your child. Mm. That's beautiful. So much about that future, too. It's filled with promise and hope mm-hmm. and love. Love for this amazing world that Dee has dreamt into being. Love for George, who she wants to go on this journey with her now that she's becoming her her highest self. And love for herself. And love for herself. So then she she basically comes to that character, Serafina, is aka Beyonce, which is hilarious. <laughs> because it's also it's it's like it, French, beyond it, above it. Oh, it's so mm-hmm. good. It's so good. <laughs> I love it. And the, you, you'd never know that. No. You, you'd never know if she doesn't have a name. Why did you do this? Just make it more awesome in a way that we don't know until we look it up on, on IMDb. Jerks. <laughs> so she's confronted with a choice then. Like, oh, now you're ready to join our society. Do you want to hang out with all of us awesome people? And she could, but she's got to. Well, it's not that she's got to go back to D. It's that she wants... To bring some of this back to D, she wants D to have the care and love that she's going to need to blossom in her own future, to maybe become her own Orithria Blue. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what kind of person she's going to be when she gets back. Enlightened? It's really interesting. So she chooses to go back and try and fit her, you know, fully formed self into who she was. Which is going to be hard. If you are strong and free, how are you going to be Hippolyta? Well, her name is Hippolyta Freeman, though. So That's I'm right. Just saying. It's written right into it. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about, about freedom. If you were to become strong and free and come back to the world, like how, how could you abide it? Don't know. So I assume that she just shows up in her house. Like she walked through a portal from Kansas to Chicago. Yeah, which leaves Tick with Woody and a dead cop. Because Tick pops right back out of the portal. He just pops right back out. He just got spat out like it didn't like him. But he has something. He's holding this book, this paperback, that is Lovecraft Country by George Freeman. But he went on the quest to get a book. It's not the book of names. Maybe it is the book of names. And I would love to hear if he actually went to an alternate reality or if it just kind of showed up that way. Like, is this an alternate reality in which George became a writer? 
What did Tick do? What happened to Tick? Well, maybe we'll find out. Mm-hmm. But it would also be cool if we never found out. But I do want to know more about that book. But he, like a smart man, like our hero, he turns off the machine, takes out the key, and then bolts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> none, yeah. of this, none of this leaving shit running. Take care yeah. of this. But not like a smart man. He doesn't look for what else might be there. No. And as prelude to next week's episode, we pan down and Hippolyta had set Dee's comic on the machine. And now it rests under a dead man. A dead police officer. With her name on it. Our PSA for this week is listen to some Afrofuturist funk music. That's assignment number one. Assignment number two is listen to some current Afrofuturist music like Janelle Monet. That's pretty easily done. Uh, three would be I can recommend some Afrofuturist short stories. Absolutely. Read some Afrofuturist short stories. And then, like, just jive on this whole aesthetic. It is the best futuristic aesthetic that exists. So next week, it looks like it's going to get real scary next week. What I got from the promo, it was another one where I was like, I have no idea what's happening, but I do not like it. Yeah, it's like we were afraid for Ruby when we saw that one promo. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but Ruby's in danger. That but D. Oh. And so much more D. Like... Ruby turning into a weird white lady and forming an alliance with Christina William, like that's freaky. But D and that whatever it was that she was holding hands with as it did that little clicking its heels in the air. Oh long nail finger situation, Uh like not good. And from the episode title, Mm. it seems like one we will learn more about the impact of a death in the community yeah so i'll say i'm sort of looking forward to next week because there's going to be some pretty cool stuff i think just in terms of horror but also i'm really dreading it and also i just was like no i'll stay up and finish it tonight oh wait i can't (laughs) we are in the home stretch because there's only three episodes left so we are definitely starting to wrap up plot so i think things are going to start to come together really quickly mm-hmm. and it'll be interesting to see what kind of conclusion this series has i don't know with the current situation who knows about the future of any television show so how long must we wait for more well we'll be waiting right here in lovecraft country scared of the ocean because it's so vast um and then i realized that it's just like you know the prairie 
Yeah, and if you don't go too far out, you won't fall off the edge. The same is not true of the prairie. There's no shelf of prairie. It's only just prairie. I guess you could stick near the rivers. That is actually what I would like to do, yes. The rivers and streams (laughs) that you're used to. That sounds good. I'm good with that. (laughs) Uh, So so back to... 